Well, uh, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how the story of the Bible uh, actually helps us make sense of all the other stories in the Bible. And specifically for the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been camping out at the beginning of the story. Uh, really, we've been camping out at the beginning of the beginning of the story because the beginning of the story gives us the foundation on which the rest of the story is going to be built and also the framework from which we can understand the rest of the story. Uh, now, if you happen to be here or in Williamsburg or Somerset or watching online and it's been a while since you know you've been acquainted with the scriptures or opened up the scriptures or maybe you've just never had an interest in the scripture uh, the beginning of the story as it relates to the Bible begins in the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament in the first book of the Old Testament that we call the book of Genesis or the book of beginnings uh, Moses wrote the book of Genesis somewhere around 1400 BC he was writing it to Israel before they crossed over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. Uh, there is a transition from one generation to a new generation. And Moses is telling a story to the nation of Israel that is bigger than any one part of the story. And Moses is writing this story in order that they can understand in a better way God, themselves, the world, and their place in the middle of it all. So as Moses is writing a larger story with other stories, it's really important for you and I as we study the Bible not to get hung up on the parts and on individual parts or troublesome parts. It's okay to spend some time in trying to figure it out and it's okay to spend some time in trying to ask some questions, but not to get hung up on individual parts to the part, you know, to the point that it actually causes us to miss the point of the whole thing. Now, as Moses is writing Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters one through 11, is actually the prologue. It is actually the introduction to the story that Moses is really wanting to tell that begins in chapter 12. So Genesis 1 through 11, which happens to be some of the most controversial content in Genesis, is actually the beginning of the story that Moses really wants to tell that begins in Genesis chapter 12 that we'll talk about in just a few weeks. So as we read through Genesis and as we read through the writings of Moses, our goal is, our mission is to the best of our ability to find out what did Moses mean to communicate when he wrote this down for the nation of Israel because the intent of the author is where we find the authority of Scripture. It's just not what does the Bible say, but it's actually what does the Bible mean by what it says. So when Israel is listening to Moses, you know, relay this story or later on when they read this story that he's writing down, uh, he is trying to answer some of their questions. Uh, actually, some of our questions because humanity shares in some of the same questions. They're timeless questions. And it doesn't matter where on the planet you may be or what generation you're a part of. Uh, we all find ourselves as members of humanity asking some of the same questions. You know, where did I come from? You know, questions of origin. You know, who am I? Uh, questions of identity. Uh, what is my role here on this planet? You know, questions of purpose. How am I supposed to live? Questions of morality. You know, all humans to some degree were asking some of the same questions. Israel, they were asking those questions then. And many of us, if not all of us, at some point in our lives have asked some of those timeless questions ourselves. But as we approach the Bible and as we approach the biblical text, it's very important for us as 21st you know, century people to remember that Israel, they do not share some of the specific questions that you and I have as it relates 
to the scripture. They are an ancient people in an ancient context with ancient understanding. We are a modern people in a modern context with modern understanding. We understand more. And naturally, because we know more and understand more, our questions about some things and specific questions about some things are going to be much different than the questions concerning the audience that Moses had in 1400 BC might have been asking. So as we approach Genesis, we have to understand that Moses is writing to ancient people who are asking ancient questions, but he is communicating to them timeless answers. And that means that Genesis offers us a worldview that shapes our view of God, the world, mankind, and our place in the midst of it all. So last week, if you weren't here, we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about our first parents. And Moses tells the story about the Garden of Eden. And he tells the story about how Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God said, you can have all the trees, but there's one tree you can't have. And that was the one tree they wanted. And that's the one tree they decided that they would eat from. And so he tells us this story that many of us have heard so many times since childhood, but he is telling this story in order to answer a larger question. And the question is this, what is wrong with the world? Because Israel in 1400 BC, they knew something was wrong with the world. And perhaps, maybe better than some of us, they understood that something was wrong with the world. Because their people, their families had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had been the object of tyranny and oppression. They knew there was something wrong with the world. And so Moses, he tells this story to communicate to them, as well as to us. Because when you turn on the news, you turn on the radio, you know, you read the internet, you know, and you find out what's happening happening here and what's happening there. It's just a matter of seconds before you know that there's something wrong with the world. You read what's happening in Laurel County. You read what's happening in Pulaski County. You read what's happening in Whitley County. You read what's happened in Kentucky, what's happened in the U.S., what's happened, you know, in North America, what's happened across the world. And you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, there's something wrong with the world. There's something just not right. Something is broke. What is wrong with the world? And so Moses tells this story to answer the question. And the answer to the question is simply this, sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. When Adam and Eve decided to reject and rebel against God, sin entered into the world. And if you want to know why there's pain, if you want to know why there's suffering, if you want to know why there's oppression and violence and disease and decay and strife and hatred and tyranny, if you want to know why there's abuse and if you want to know why people can do to people what they sometimes do to people, Moses says the answer is sin. When Adam and Eve sin, Sin entered into the world. They died spiritually, and in some way, all the world became broken in some way. And so last week, we wrapped up with the big storyline of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, he's coming after us. And that's the story that he's telling in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, He's coming after us. Matter of fact, let's just at all of our churches, on the count of three, let's all just say this together. God created, we rebelled, we ran away, he's coming after us. And so after Genesis 3, thus begins the rest of the story. The rest of the story is God is going to win his family back. God is going to win you back. God is going to win me back. God is going to win us back back. And in the rest of the story, we see God's plan unfolding in real time, in time and space. And God's plan unveils itself 
with screwed up, messed up people just like you and just like me because God is coming after us. Not to pay us back, but God is coming after us to win us back. So, back to the story. Adam and Eve sin. Sin enters the world, and the world is now spiraling out of control. What was once good and orderly is now broken and disorderly. So Cain, you know, Cain and Abel, the two brothers, you know, they were born to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they leave the garden. Adam and Eve had children, and Cain and Abel are two of their sons and their brothers. And it doesn't take long for the sting of sin, the pain of sin, to once again strike in the family of Adam and Eve because Cain kills his brother Abel. And that was horrible. It was terrible. This is what happens when sin is in the world. And I can only imagine as it relates to Adam and Eve, you know, not only the pain of their own sin and not only the guilt and the shame of their own sin that cost them Eden and God had to escort them out of Eden and block Eden off to say, you can't go back and how that must have hurt. But then to see how the consequences of your choices are also affecting your children. That's pain. That's a different kind of pain. And that's how sin works. Because wherever there is sin, we find it all throughout the scripture. Sin brings death. We read it in the scriptures, and when we look around in the world, we see that it is true today. Sin brings death. So, sin is spreading, and now there's a lost access to the presence of God. God's presence was in Eden, but now they can't go back to Eden, so they've lost access to the presence of God. And with lost access to the presence of God, mankind wants to have it back. It seems to be an, intu- an intuition. It seems to be an instinct that what they have lost, they now want back because there was something missing. The world seemed out of control. There's violence, there's pain. Now there is a murder and the whole world seems out of control and the whole world seems to be without meaning and it seems to be now without peace. And so with something missing, without order, without any source of wisdom, without access to God, It says in the book of Genesis chapter four that at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. They knew something was missing. They knew that once upon a time they had lost access to the presence of God. Adam and Eve, they lost access to the presence of God and subsequently all that came after them lost access to the presence of God. There had been a separation between mankind and God. But immediately after the sin in the garden, there was a desire to right what was wrong in the world. There was a desire to right what was wrong with their relationship with God. And so they began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to invoke his presence. They wanted to be back in the presence of God. They wanted to reconnect with God. And we see it in even Cain and Abel. Before Cain killed Abel, they both brought offerings to God. And they, you know, it seems to be that they were trying to build a relationship with God based on sacrifice. So they're trying to gain what was lost by their parents. They're giving offerings in worship to God. And so they're trying to rebuild a relationship with God based on sacrifice. And so while people are beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, sin continues to spread. It continues to get worse and worse. And so the Bible tells us about how the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil 
all the time. And here's the thing. Moses is absolutely using hyperbolic language. He is exaggerating. The scriptures do this all the time. Hyperbolic language to communicate something that is really true. Hyperbolic language to communicate something that is literally true. And he's communicating to us that humanity is on a self-destructive trajectory. That humanity is hurting themselves and they are hurting each other. And we see a picture of creation that started off good is now beginning to unravel because of sin. And this all sets the stage for Moses, for where Moses is taking us in the story next. It says, but, but in the midst of all of humanity spiraling out of control and every thought, every imagination set upon evil, in the midst of all of that, it says, but Noah found favor, or better translated, grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah, we're introduced to him as a man who had received the grace of God. That's how we're introduced to him in the story. With all the world seemingly going to hell in a handbasket, Noah is a recipient of grace. And what is grace? Because this is the question I think the text wants us to immediately ask. What is grace? Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. That's grace. When you receive, when I receive what we do not deserve, we call that grace. It's receiving what you have not earned. When you get it and you didn't earn it, you call that grace. When you get it and you couldn't pay for it and you didn't pay for it, you call that grace. And so we're introduced to Noah as a man who has received and who has experienced the grace of God. He did not deserve the grace that he received. He did not earn the grace that he received. He could not purchase, procure. He could not sacrifice his way to receive this grace. This is grace that has been freely given to him. And so with that said, most of us all of our lives have been told the wrong story as it pertains to Noah, the flood, and the ark. Most of us who grew up in Sunday school, our Sunday school teacher set us down at the little tables and our little colored wood, you know, wood chairs and said, okay, kids, I'm going to tell you the story of Moses, or I'm going to tell you the story of Noah. And then proceeds to tell us about how Noah was a good guy. And Noah was a good guy and everybody else were bad guys. And because Noah was a good guy, he got saved from the flood. And everybody who were bad guys, they ended up dying in the flood. And so, you know, most of the, the storyline that we heard from Noah and the ark and the flood basically came down to, if you ever want to escape something really, really bad, then you just need to be really, really good. Because Noah was really, really good and everybody else was really, really bad. At the end of the story, he survives and they did not. And it's almost like we heard the message that if you want to be kept from what is bad, if you want to be kept from what is tragic, if you want to be saved from natural disaster, if you want to be saved from disease, then just be good. If you'll just be good, then you can evade all of that stuff. And so many of us, we've walked through life with disappointments as it relates to our faith because in childhood and throughout our teenage years and young adult years, we thought as long as we were good, God would give us a pass. There'd be no pain. There'd be no injustice that would visit us personally. But as long as we were good, somehow we were going to get a pass 
from all the bad stuff in life. And I think many times the reason that we thought that is because we were told the wrong version of this particular story. Noah is a sinner. He has received grace. And here's the big idea. Noah did not good his way onto the boat. God graced him on to the boat. You got to understand that, that Noah did not good his way on the boat. God graced him on to the boat. And, and that's the story. It's not about Noah being good. It's about God being gracious. It makes God the hero of the story and not Noah the hero of the story because Noah is not the hero of the story. Matter of fact, here's a great way to understand the Bible. This will make your reading so much easier. We are never the heroes of the story. He is always the hero of the story. It is not about Noah being good. This is a story about God being full of grace. And so with that said, Moses goes on. He says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Now, Noah was not a terrible man, but he was a sinner just like everybody else. And there's really not a degree of, hey, sinners as it relates to their relationship with God. Sin separates us from God. And it doesn't matter what kind of sin and it doesn't matter what label the sin is. Sin separates us from God. But he had received God's grace and he had responded to it in a healthy way. And because he had responded to it in a healthy way, it had made a difference in his life. He had decided to as much as possible, he was going to do it God's way. That means righteous. You're trying to do it God's way. He was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time. He was not like everybody else. He was different from everybody else. And it was not Noah. It was God's grace in Noah's life. He was properly responding to the grace of God in his life. He was a bad guy just like everybody else was a bad guy. But he had opened up his hands and his life to the grace of God. And so when Noah steps onto the scene, he knows the story of Eden because it's been passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Fathers telling sons and daughters and mothers telling sons and daughters. And it's just been passed down. So Noah knows the history of what's behind him. Noah's been told about Eden. He's been told about how sin has entered into the world. And so he has responded to the grace of God. And so Moses goes on. He says, Noah had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And the reason that he tells us this is not necessarily because uh, we need to know who his sons are. Uh, and we do need to know who his sons are, but we need to understand why we need to know who his sons are. And the reason that we need to know who his sons are is going to come later. Because Moses has an end in mind. And when you start off a story with the end in mind, you include details that are really going to come more true or it's going to make sense a little later on in the story. Moses is not making up this story as he goes. He knows the story that he wants to tell before he ever finishes writing it. So he's including details that are going to be very important later on in the story that he's going to tell. And so he goes on. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence. Now, Again, we've heard the story so many times and we miss the emotion of it all. Think for a moment 
Think for a moment of that story that you've scrolled across on Facebook, that story that you've read on social media, that story that was there, you know, on your iPhone, there on the news page app, you know, all those things that you go through and read daily or weekly, or, you know, that thing you saw on the nightly news or somebody told you about at work. Think about that story that just made your stomach turn. Think about what you heard about that mother who abused the child or that father who did something to that child or what this person did to that person or what's happening in this country or what's happening in this corner of the world. And when you hear about some of the details, it just turns your stomach and then you just find yourself getting a bit angry. You, you find yourself just saying to yourself, how in the world, how in the world could anything like this happen. And so that is not new. That is not just our generation. That is every generation after the garden. We just happen to be hearing about it more and more because we have access to it more and more. But this here is a clear picture of how sin works in every single generation. And when you get down to the lowest common denominator of how sin works and what sin does, in the midst of the violent culture then, in the midst of the violent culture now, in the midst of all the rhetoric and how we speak to each other and how we speak about each other, in the midst of wars and speculation of wars, the thing that you always find there at the very bottom of how sin works and what sin does is this right here. Sin always causes us to unlove our neighbors. That's what sin does. That's what sin has done from the very beginning. That's what sin continues to do today. That's what sin has caused me to do. That's what sin at times has caused you to do. Sin always causes us to unlove our neighbors. Sin always causes us to hurt our neighbor. Sin always causes us to hurt people either ourselves or someone else or both. It's what causes us to mistreat one another. It's what causes people to harm other people. It's what causes some people to kill other people, abuse other people, oppress other people, discriminate against other people, hate other people, attack other people, rage against people. It's sin. That's what sin does. That's how sin works. Sin always causes us to unlove our neighbor. It causes us to attack other people who are made, as we've been told, in the image of God. And when we unlove someone in the image of God, we have actively unloved God at the same time. That's the reason. That's the reason that Jesus said, if you're going to love God, you have to love God other people. You have to love your neighbor as yourself because loving your neighbor as yourself is the evidence that you love God. How can you love God who you have not seen? Have, you've not seen if you can't love people whom you have seen. That's how sin works. It always causes us to unlove our neighbor. And so the text goes on. It says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had been corrupted in their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people 
For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So sin is rampant. People are hurting themselves. People are hurting other people. And when people hurt themselves and when people hurt other people, it breaks the heart of God. It breaks the heart of God. And what we've just read and what we've just heard, that can bother us a little bit. When it says, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And Moses is giving us some type of insight to how God felt in this moment and how God is going to act in this moment. This could be a hard thing for some of us in our modern sensibilities to process. And it makes us uncomfortable. That because the earth is filled with violence, God says, I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. This is uncomfortable. We, I, if not you, me, I don't like the thought of that. I don't like the idea of that. And I think that's probably true of all of us, but, but here's the thing we've got to understand. There can't be such a thing as the mercy of God without such a thing as the justice of God. There can't be such a thing as the grace of God without such a thing as the judgment of God. This was the only way. This was the only way that God could end the violence. This was the only way that God could end people hurting people at this specific point in history. The only way to end the violence was to judge the violent people. That was the only way. And so this doesn't help us. This is, this is, this is not emotionally satisfying. But when we think about it, we begin to understand that the love of God, the love of God necessitates the justice of God. The love of God necessitates, it requires the justice of God. And we don't like this, I understand that. We don't like this. And we can protest against this. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean that it's not true. Even though we don't understand it, it doesn't mean that it's not true. Imagine for a moment if God, imagine for a moment if God was only love. And there was no such thing as the justice of God. There was no such thing as the judgment of God. Do you know what that means? It means that evil can just be evil. In a world where there's just love and no justice, just grace, in a reality where that's all that exists, evil people continue to be evil. And in a world like that, people continue to hurt people and people continue to kill people. But think for a moment, if all God was was justice, if all that God was was a God of judgment, none of us could stand. None of us would be left. The scriptures say in Psalms 145, it says, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Aren't you glad for that? The Lord is gracious. He gives to us what we do not deserve. He gives to us what we cannot earn. The Lord is gracious. He is compassionate. He feels for us. He knows our dilemma. 
He feels what we feel. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is slow to anger and he is rich in love. He is rich in love. And so we may not like this little tidbit that Moses puts in the story. We may not like it, but it does not mean that it is not true. And parents, if you are a parent, you understand this. You cannot be just love and grace. That cannot be all that you are. To be just a parent, to be just a father or a mother of just love and grace would to be a disservice to your children. But at the same time, to be a parent who is just, you know, a parent of judgment and justice without any love or grace would also be a detriment to your son or to your daughter. And if you saw another parent who was just all love and grace, you would not consider that to be good parenting. If you saw another parent who was just justice and judgment, you would not think that that was a good parent. But if you saw a parent who was able to be love and grace and justice and judgment at the same time, you would think that's good parenting. And in God, we find a God who is both a God of grace and truth. And we are introduced to the idea that there can be no justice in the world without judgment. There can be no such thing as justice without judgment. You cannot have a God who is just interested in justice without a God who also at some point must also exercise judgment. And so God tells him, Noah, make yourself an ark, build a boat. And this is the part of the story that if I were Noah, I would just say, okay, just take me on home because I can't put together a coffee table and I'm sure as heck not gonna be able to build a boat. Not even if my wife and my son's life are on the line. I could probably try to put together the boat, but we're going to sink. So God just take us home. But he says, I want you to build a boat. Now, this is the part of the story everybody loves to talk about, and this is the part that everybody loves to debate. This flood thing, this deluge, you know, this, this destructive water, this natural disaster that, that Moses says had a supernatural intent, this natural disaster that God had a purpose in, this, this natural disaster that somewhere in the midst of it all, that God was going to bring good out of this natural disaster. And so people, you know, debate the flood. And the big debate is, you know, was the flood global? Because many people think that it was. Or was it local? Was it a local flood to which many people think that it was? They would say that Moses continually uses hyperbolic language throughout this entire narrative about Noah, the flood, and the ark. And so, you know, the hyperbolic language when he says all the earth and all people, that's not what he really meant. He's speaking about the Mesopotamian basin. He's speaking about a geographically confined area. And there's lots of people who've stood, you know, they've studied this you know, countless hours, more so than you and I will ever think about this. Matter of fact, we've heard this story so many times, we stopped thinking about it a long time ago. We stopped studying it a long time ago. We stopped investigating it a long time ago. But people, very smart people, they study this. And archaeologists, they study this. And ocean, oceanographers, they, they study this. 
And many people developed a theory that as glaciers in the north began to melt, the Mediterranean Sea began to rise, and pretty soon it broke through, and it began to flood the Mesopotamian basin with the force of 200 times that of you know, Niagara Falls. And it was such that it covered about 150,000 square miles. And in this, it changed the Black Sea, which once upon a time, about seven to 12,000 years ago, used to be a freshwater lake. It turned it into a saltwater sea. That during that you know, flood from the Mediterranean, that the Black Sea actually grew by about a mile a day. And many people believe that that was the flood that we have record of in the early part of Genesis. And so as people debate this again, they think, okay, do I have to abandon my faith in order to accept science? And if science says that there's no evidence of a global flood and there's no evidence in the fossil record, do I have to abandon my faith in order to accept science? Uh, do I have to ignore science in order to maintain my interpretation of the text that I have been taught since the time that I was a child? Or, or, do I allow God's created order and what we discover to be true about God's created order to affect what my interpretation of the scriptures are? And that's what people think about. That's why they debate that because these debates, though they're not the point of the story, they are important parts of the story. But I want to say to you, do not get hung up on the parts of the story to the point that you miss the point of the story. Don't allow the parts of the story that we may not be able to understand prevent you from accepting or thinking about the point of the story that we very much can understand. And the point of the story is simply this. The story of Noah is a story about God's justice, his grace, and the inevitable catastrophe from mankind's unrestrained sin. That's what this story is all about. That whenever sin is involved, there is an inevitable conclusion and it's gonna be catastrophic. But in the midst of this predictable ending, as far as sin is concerned, we find God's grace, we find God's love, we find God's justice in the midst of the story. And so this particular part of the story concludes with that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He built the ark. He saved his family. He built the ark. He saved his family. He listened to God. He listened to what God told him to do. As nonsensical as it may have felt, as nonsensical as it may have seemed, as much as there was a disconnect perhaps in Noah's mind and in Noah's emotions about what God was telling him to do, he listened to God. He trusted God, he obeyed God, and listen to this, moms, dads, grandparents, single folks who can influence the next generation. His obedience, his trust in God, the fact that he listened to God, it benefited, it blessed his inner circle. It blessed his family. It blessed the next generation. Does your obedience matter? You bet it does. Moms, does the fact that you trust God matter? You bet it does. Dads, does the fact that you may or may not trust God matter? You bet it does. Can the fact that you trust God, obey God, follow God, listen to God, bet all on God, can it make a difference? You bet that it will. 
It absolutely will make a difference. It'll make a difference for you and it'll make a difference in the next generation of those who are coming after you. He obeyed God even when it didn't make sense. And some of you, that's the battle you're fighting right now. You want to listen to God. You want to follow God, but you just can't make it, you know, make it make sense in your mind. Noah obeyed even when it didn't make sense. Even when it wasn't easy, he obeyed anyway. And what we find is Noah is a story of a sinner saved by grace. That's what we find. Noah his story is a story of a man who was saved by God's grace. An ordinary man with extraordinary faith. And because of his faith, he was willing to be different than the people in his generation. He was willing to walk in a different direction than most everybody else in his culture. He was willing to stand out rather than blend in. He was willing to be considered a radical. He was willing to be considered weird. He was willing to be part of a minority of people who were trying to do it God's way. That's what faith does. And as our culture increasingly moves in a different direction, away from God, away from faith, away from the things of God and things of faith, what will you and I do? Will we succumb to the pressure of culture and friends and our inner circles? And will we just get in line and go the direction of everybody else? Or will our faith cause us to do something different? Will our faith cause us to swim upstream as difficult as it may be, unpopular as it may be? What will our faith do in our generation? What can we learn from this man's faith? I think there's several things that we can learn, but I don't have time for several things. One thing that we can learn from this story is that every sinner is saved the same way by God's grace. Every sinner is saved the same way by God's grace. We don't good our way in, but we are graced our way in by God. Himself, And what we also learn is that God is a God of both love and judgment. In the New Testament, we're told that at the end of days, that God is going to judge the world once again. There's going to be another judgment. And both the small and the great are going to stand before God. Both the living and those who have died are going to be summoned in front of the throne of God and all are going to stand before him and God this God of justice will execute judgment at the end of days that's what we are told happens towards the end of the story but in the middle of the story in the New Testament we have good news and the good news is that before judgment occurs at the end of the age God has made a way for us like Noah to be saved. In the New Testament, we find that God did not send us a judge, but God sent us a savior. In order to be saved before the final judgment, Jesus one day was talking to a group of people and he says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And if anyone hears my words, 
but does not keep them. I do not judge that person. And then listen to what the Son of God said. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus came to give us an opportunity to have a right relationship with God, to have access to the presence of God that was lost in Eden. And because of Jesus, our relationship with God is built on sacrifice. Not our sacrifice for Him, but Christ's sacrifice for us. In just a moment at all of our churches, one of our pastors are gonna come up and talk to us all about taking a step of faith. And if you've not taken that step of faith about placing your faith in Jesus as your savior today, they're gonna talk to us about what it means to follow Jesus and about God's grace and about God's forgiveness. And that the very same grace that Noah knew and that Noah received, we can know and receive as well. Heavenly Father, as our pastors prepare to come and speak to us, may the Holy Spirit in this moment arrest our attention and arrest our hearts. And may you speak to us personally the words that we need to hear in this moment. And may all of us who need to take a step feel the freedom to take that step right now. In Jesus' name.